Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Mountain Stories podcast. I'll be the first to admit that these weren't exactly the conditions under which we'd be releasing today's podcast, but part of it seemed as important as ever. The goal of this podcast, the Mountain Stories podcast, and the Institute of Mountain Research is to build a community of people who care about mountains and to share the stories of people who live, work, and play in mountain landscapes. Today's episode is about the different ways that two folks at Westminster find refuge and solace in mountain landscapes. Hikmet Lowe and Russ Costa led a discussion they titled Embodied Landscapes, Embodied Minds, Restorative Nature at Westminster's Honors College a couple weeks ago, before the COVID-19 outbreak. Much of what they discussed remains relevant even in these topsy-turvy times. Hikmet has taught art history at Westminster College since January in 2006 and was thrilled to assist in the creation of the Honors College class that would later become environments in the space of art. Her first book is on Robert Smithson's earthwork, Spiral Jetty. She's in the manuscript phase of working on a second book on Nancy Holth earthwork, Sun Tunnels. Russ is a cognitive scientist who studies attention and perception in the lab and risk-taking and decision-making in high-risk environments outside of it. His fascination with how brains work and how humans behave in dangerous spaces had its genesis in his experiences as a ski mountaineer. Before we get to the conversation between Hickman and Russ, I've invited Kate Blair, the Student Honors Council Secretary and one of the organizers of the discussion, to offer an introduction to the Honors Council Spring Series and to this discussion. Here's Kate. Hello. So I just wanted to speak a little bit about why the Student Honors Council chose to focus an event on restorative nature. Our event was entitled Embodied Landscapes, Embodied Minds, and Restorative Nature. And it was kind of born out of something that SHC noticed as we began our year-long term. We felt that the Honors College and Westminster College in general, although focused on discussion and dialogue, often tended to have a deficiency in embodied learning. And so from that, we felt that there was a need to implement experiential learning into our events, engaging students and faculty in relevant topics, um, including healing, perfectionism, holistic learning, student health, and expression. So in order to do that, this particular event focused on healing, that element of healing, and we invited Hikmet Lowe and Russ Costa to lead this event for many reasons, but particularly for their obvious personal and diverse love of nature, aesthetics and beauty, and how the mind and body heal in these natural settings. We planned this event to happen right before midterms week, which we thought was pretty appropriate just because we hope to create kind of a restorative environment um, with two really warm and inviting professors to create not only a discussion about healing, but actual healing in the space. And luckily for us, Hikmet and Russ offered a really warm, co-constructive environment of dialogue, interaction, and honesty. They asked students to reimagine their relationships with the natural world and handled some difficult questions relating to trauma and family history with nature. And they really ultimately contributed to social, emotional, and cultural health as it relates to nature. And I think this dialogue was really beneficial for the Westminster community and the Honors College in particular. And I think it fits um, really beautifully into Student Honors Council's mission, but moreover, just a general social and academic need for more embodied learning and place-based education. Thanks.
To frame their discussion, Hickman and Russ each chose five images that grounded their own relationships to natural landscapes. You can find those images on the episode webpage at podcast.mountainresearch.org. And so with no further ado, let's hear what Hickman and Russ have to say. This um, is Ansel, uh, Ansel Adams' photo of uh, the Snake River and the Tetons in the background. Many of you have probably seen this before, and I'll just start by saying I'm not actually a huge Ansel Adams fan. That's not uh, for a variety of reasons, including just his work, I think. Who is that? It's a sort of famous uh, American photographer who took a lot of classic images of the Western United States, including the Sierra and obviously the Tetons as well. That is the Grand Teton in the image. Um, but this image always struck me as sort of the model. There's actually two. The painting I couldn't find, John Wesley's Powell's, uh, John Wesley Powell's drawing of Mount Moran, um, and this image of the Tetons, which always sort of guided uh, me, w dating back to the time I grew up in Boston, um, back east, and this is what I thought the West was like. In many ways, having spent a lot of climbing up there, skiing up there, I mean, this is a place where the, it is in many ways still looks like that if you get to the right spot. Um, and of course, um, the aesthetic value of it with the uh, the line, uh, the Snake River cast there, as well as uh, the lighting behind the Tetons is, is, is sort of a great aesthetic piece. But um, having spent time camping up there and, and, and sleeping outdoors out there uh, and seen a lot of images, it's one of the few sort of iconic images of the West that I think was captured in my direct experience in life, uh, not via photography or painting, but, but uh, through my own perception. And um, it matched up and has countless times in being there, and it was sort of this, oh, uh, life, real life is as good as these classic images you see in books growing up or as a, as a kid growing up in the suburbs and the flatland and sort of wanting to go west. And it's rare uh, to sort of capture that. And so one of the things I actually don't like about Ansel Adams' work is I think it sometimes is overdone and I just see too much of it. But the fact that I can see that on the weekend and um, five hours away or so from where you could mm -hmm. camp at this overlook and, and do that was one of the reasons I was drawn to the Western United States, one of the reasons I, I did my best to stay here. Because um, yeah. you, did you um, do all of your PhD education at the University of Utah? Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, and some of it in places like this. Yes. <laughs> that, was, that was a very important education as well, um, but I was, I was certainly always tra often traveling up to the Tetons, and I'm still there a couple times a year. No. Who was it who said when they were a child they wanted to be an astronomer? Right? How many of us? It was escapism for me. This, this was a stock photograph. This is from Getty Images. You can Google Getty Images Moon. So when I was, by the time I was in third grade, I wanted to study Mars. I was deeply interested in the ice caps and, and everything about that planet. I was gonna be an astronomer. And then it just kept on changing and changing. And so when we were thinking about these images and landscapes that really sort of impact us, I can't stop thinking about the heavens. And I call them that, not religiously, but like sort of our relationship to them. And I'm deeply fascinated and drawn to that. Um, I've been 
studying Mesopotamian astronomy for about six months now. Um, because within astronomy, we think Greeks, you know, sort of the different uh, constellations, they all came from Mesopotamia. And so I keep on finding that I'm just like, well, I think I'll just get another like image mm -hmm. and put it on my body. And I'm sort of fascinated. I'm not judging myself, mm -hmm. but I've done like five of them so far because I'm really interested in this, this aspect. And is it escapism? It certainly was when I was a child. It was don't want to be in this environment in this house. And I literally projected here. Plus, it's a circle. <laughs> so you're going to notice a theme then between these different images and the shapes of these images and who chose them. Do they have circles or mountains? Pretty much. That's it. You uh, got one or the other. So what is it about circles? <laughs> what is it about circles? I, I love that. Um, I think that they're both really simple and really complex. So this idea that it's just a band that is... Uh, an infinite space and shape that continues into itself, but the complexity of the mass of it. And so my orientation to studying sculpture and land art is about like physical embodiment in landscapes and mass. And what is that like? And these are conversations that I've really valued having with Russ about being in landscapes and what does that feel like and what, what does that elicit from us? And so I really like the round shapes. I, I think that they're really fascinating. And there's something that all of this feels really sort of peaceful. Don't get me wrong, my favorite mountains are the Silver Mountains out near Wendover, little jagged, you know, like objects of things. So not everything has to be round, but this is very soothing to me. I also like thinking that we're just made of stardust, right? I, and that is both very poetic and very grounding in a certain kind of a way that then takes me into this sort of land, landscape, skyscape field. And I, I find a lot of peace out there. And it's probably why I like to watch a lot of, you know, those soap operas that take place, like Battlestar Galactica and stuff like that, because they're out in space. I just finished The Expanse. I'm so pissed off. I don't have more Expanse. What? Back to back for you. Back-to-back -back stock images. <laughs> I love being on the beach. And here, so, so thinking a lot about these images and why they were chosen. As much as I like those circles and that depth, that stark horizontal of water, to me is really appealing. Like, I find a lot of comfort in that. Okay, oceans can change in a heartbeat. They can change shape. They can, but when they look like this, this sort of peacefulness that is part of the water, I am totally attracted to that. I would just want to start walking and just keep on walking out into it in a really healthy, taking care of myself kind of way. There, right? There's, there are scenes in movies where people don't stop walking, they keep going, and I would stop. But, but that horizontal line is amazing to me. 
Um, I didn't grow up on water, but I did grow up um, near water for a little bit as a child, and I would I would love to live right there. So part of it is just maybe fantasy and thinking about that. But the peacefulness that comes from that flat water that glistens. You grew up in, near water. I did, in the next image. Not peaceful water, though. Um, <laughs> I grew up on the ocean, kind of near the ocean, I suppose, on, on the Massachusetts coast. And uh, it's actually a British artist, a painter. Uh, but um, storms were always meaningful and key, um, um, and particularly some of the storms we get on the, on the Massachusetts and Maine coasts. Um, and my favorite time to be on the water, in part for peacefulness, when the tourist traffic died down was in like October on, on the otter and on the beach and when you're the only person on the ocean yeah. and sort of watching storms come in and they could be windy and cold and, and uh, I think someone used the term violence when we originally went through this and, and certainly large storms and waves do have that, that sort of violent character. But in other ways, it's sort of uh, a soothing aspect, too, of nature and sort of uh, being mm -hmm. up close and witnessing the power of nature. And there's other images I have here with uh, volcanoes and things like that. Um, um, but ocean storms were always uh, a really powerful uh, uh, thing for um, sort of my growing up in Boston and, and around Boston and, and being... Um, on the water, even if though it wasn't a nice beach, this contrasts quite well with the beach image. <laughs> warm and aesthetic, which it can get that way in July, but in December, right. uh, November and December, that's the coast with waves crashing on the sea. And it's beautiful mm -hmm. and powerful. And uh, Hickman and I and other discussions have talked about the notion of the beautiful and the sublime, which involves, it's sort of a romantic, what uh, a 18th century notion mm -hmm. um, of aesthetics that for something to be truly, uh, truly beautiful it has to be awesome in the sort of original meaning of the term awesome and that is sort of it invokes both wonder but also a little bit of fear um, in the power of mm -hmm. nature and so much art and aesthetics here goes to sort of these images of, of powerful storms as being um, um, the original meaning of the word sublime mm -hmm. in that nation yeah. from Edmund Burke I believe originally. it was um, Edmund Burke who was uh, interestingly a British statesman so he's a politician and he writes one of the most game-changing books about aesthetics with a title so damn long, I can't remember it, but something about the impact of the sublime. So Burke is B-U-R-K-E. And, and we talk about that in the environments in the space of art class, but we certainly talk about it in relationship to landscape. And sometimes that... That, that's okay, that, that sort of level of maybe anticipation or awe or fear. So people like to go to Niagara Falls. Did you ever go to Niagara Falls? I've never been to Niagara Falls. Oh, so I grew up in Pennsylvania, and we had different types of storms in Pennsylvania. But being there, and my mother uh, grew up in Canada, we would go to Niagara Falls. And people, there's a whole history of people who like to stand underneath the falls to get that 
rush to get that feeling, to feel that sort of fear in a controlled way, as opposed to the people who like put their bodies in the barrels and then jump off the edge. That's like a fear in a totally different way that's not controlled. Don't try that at home. Uh, and right? I think with, with, yeah, with, I was thinking back to Burke's work, though, too, right. in the sublime, um, one of the important aspects of aesthetics is it was at the kind of he was writing early industrial revolution and but that mm-hmm. this kind of theme this theme of romanticism would continue into the 19th century um, as more and more sort of coal mines and factories and uh, locomotives Turner will paint a lot of images of like trains and locomotives and and, and there became this movement of aesthetics to sort of escape what was becoming a more and more polluted more and more crowded uh, urban environment in this case in London but really all over for uh, sort of Western Europe and also the mm-hmm. Eastern United States at this time. And there was a movement to escape that and seek um, an escape from the commotion, dirt, and uh, traffic and pollution of cities um, by going to nature. And so you had a time when a lot of Europeans who um, had means, of a certain amount of privileges required for this, but would go to the Alps and would escape. And I think we still see that in, in present day society of sort of leaving, you see it in New York City, right? People escaping to the Catskills or the Adirondacks. Uh, certainly see it in Boston uh-huh. going up to more Fire local New Hampshire and Vermont. And you see it now more and more, and of course, in the Western United States, yeah. uh, people sort of escaping the, that, 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 those kind of city culture. And I think this you know, always explains what people would hope to see mm-hmm. when they get out of, of those environments. Mm-hmm. Escape into nature, into landscape. I don't know how many of you in honors classes have read any of the poetry of Virgil. But this idea of escape and being in landscape and the restorative healing power of landscapes, we have documentation going back to ancient Rome so that by the time of the Renaissance, architecture is built to be able to accommodate those ideas of escape. Yeah, it's it's pretty, there's a whole history of all of this. But we're going to move on to maybe Bavaria or Germany for a second. Bavaria, yeah. Bavaria. First time I ever saw the Alps is the Bavarian Alps on a May term trip from this mm-hmm. college. Um, but this is a, a work by Kandinsky, more known for sort of, sort of abstract artwork, early 20th century, uh, 19, I don't forget, 08 or 12 or something. That nature, first couple decades of the, of the 20th century. And um, one of the things that's always sort of fascinated by Kandinsky's art is uh, sort of his use of line and color, mm-hmm. which I actually did my dissertation on, on and Hickman and I taught the art uh, in the brain course, focusing on how neural structures, visual structures in particular, perceive both lines of different orientations and also different colors and sort of how the brain combines that information of form, color and form. And Kandinsky uses that in uh, one of the reasons he actually focuses on abstract art is instead of trying to represent uh, color and form as they may appear in sort of, in sort of the natural world, being able to create that on canvas in very intentional ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you spend enough time looking at mountains and such, particularly as, suns, as the sun rises and sets, uh, you end up with lots of different variations of, of the lines and ridge, uh, 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 created by ridge lines, as well as various colors created by different uh, rising and setting suns, particularly if you have snow. But, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I, I appreciate both Kandinsky's use of it on canvas, as well as sort of the way forms and lines and colors uh, um, come together when I'm traveling in the mountains. I was recently told that the narrative I've had for years 
that my birthday is the Fibonacci sequence was wrong. <laughs> Who knows the Fibonacci sequence? Calvin. It's one, one, two. It's the previous two numbers added together to make the next number. Right. So one, one, two, three, five. 13, 8, 13. So it goes on like that. So my birthday is January 23rd, 1958. So I was like, oh, that's so cool, Fibonacci sequence. Yeah, that would be November 23rd, 58, 112. So it's shattered everything, <laughs> except uh, not my sense of self-worth or my love of finding within nature. And I know I get, really get that we're back to the whole circular patterning again, but this idea that we find these patterns, these mathematical patterns, which I uh, joke that I'm not in the math club, but I can knit and I can knit complex patterns. I can see these, I can appreciate them, and I know that these patterns are everywhere. They're in our blood, they're in our DNA, they're out in the universe. We find them in plants, we find them everywhere. And I think that is so compelling. And sometimes it's, um, to get to the emotional level of all of this, it makes me feel not so lonely to literally think that we are similar to this and that is similar to so many other things. And maybe like the painter Cezanne, who we're not looking at right now, who painted and wanted to sort of like get to that hidden order of nature, I understand what he's doing in his paintings intellectually, but to me the hidden order of nature is Fibonacci sequence, is this recurring, constant patterning that happens everywhere. And, and I feel very connected. That could be my spirituality. I haven't really thought about it like that. But it makes me feel, like I said, not so lonely, which is a good thing. Yeah. Does. <laughs> Just by a show of hands. How many of you have a favorite mountain? Okay, so about a quarter of you. Good. Least favorite. Least favorite mountain. <laughs> Denali is my favorite mountain. This is an image of Denali, the tallest peak in, in uh, North America. Um, it's actually a photo taken by Bradford Washburn as part of a scientific expedition and nowadays used as historical photos to track the origins or the uh, sort of the, of the glaciers um, and how mm -hmm. far they once extended to. I think this was taken in the 50s or 60s, I believe. Um, and he was actually curator of the Museum of Science in Boston, and so his work would be displayed there quite prominently growing up. Um, um, and then, but he would also do a lot of um, photography slash exploration mapping uh, kind of projects um, in, in the Alaska range up in central Alaska. Um, when I was an undergrad, about in your shoes, um, sophomore or so, sophomore junior year, one of um, a recent graduate who was sort of president of the Mountain Club or whatever, uh, uh, came back to give a talk. He climbed uh, Denali after his um, senior year and I went to his talk and it was sort of just amazing in terms of like, whoa, this is an amazing sort of expedition experience of climbing this and, and at the time I had no idea but four or five years later um, I would be 
on that mountain, on the summit of that mountain, and somehow sort of that kind of transition from sort of in college, sort of having sort of going off into the world full of wonder and opportunity and chances and uh, sort of doing what you wanted to do uh, quickly became a reality for me, um, in particular here. You can't see the route we climbed, but it's not too far from, um, it's on that mountain on a different side. Um, and so this has always been kind of this transition from being a, an East Coast kid uh, to uh, being a mountaineer in that regard. Um, and it happened really quickly. And the sort of things that I was doing two to three, I think it was three years after I graduated, or two years actually after I graduated, were things I couldn't even imagine doing when I was an undergraduate uh, during my senior year. And so um, yeah. this image has always kind of reminded me of that. Plus cool science meets aesthetics and art. And, and this his, his photo collections used in uh, for a lot of scientific purposes, as well as, uh, um, of course, aesthetic ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. If, I feel like a cliche. <laughs> Andy Goldsworthy. How many of you know Andy Goldsworthy's art, right? So from class, um, he is he works in landscapes and he uses all found natural materials. And I am drawn to these like circular works that he does because he literally is finding all of these stones in these colors and then creating this gradient pattern with the sort of hole in the center. And I've got to tell you right now, I'm not sure that he has dug a hole. I think he's probably just put some sort of natural black material that he's found or ground because he does a lot of grinding with stones to create that center. So I'm not sure even goes anywhere. It's not like we can Alice in, into that. And I find this to be a, just really peaceful. And it also makes me just a little envious. One of the students in the current class is going to be talking about him for a project. And we were talking about the movie Rivers and Tides that is about him. And if you haven't seen it, it's really sort of interesting, but there's a part of the film where he's walking and he's picking little, he's Scottish and his village is lovely. And he's picking little yellow flowers and it starts raining and he lays down with his body. And then he gets up because part of the work that he does, it's ephemeral in nature. Then it's his silhouette on the ground that hardly lasts any time and I think what would life be like to have that kind of time to do that yeah. <laughs> no like to that that is it and he's he's crafted this life that is really quite astounding so I appreciate his work and it took me a long time to get there um We've already talked about this, I'll just move through it quickly, but the other, the other aspect we didn't talk about, uh, this is Cotopaxi, which is a, a volcanic peak in Ecuador, very large summit, 6,000 meters or so. Um, and, sorry? Sorry, I just, my family's from Ecuador, and my mom's talked about Cotopaxi, and I didn't, I didn't realize that was, that was in Ecuador. I don't. I knew there was a reason for it, so 
<laughs> I don't know how representative it is of Cotopaxi because it would have probably only been seen from a ship, and I don't even know if uh, Church, who painted Frederick Church, who painted this, had ever seen it or if this was told by accounts of people passing by. Yeah. Uh, passing by. Hudson River School painter. So Ecuador, <laughs> upstate New York. Not sure about that, right? But um, I, of course, again, I love these color here. And but the other aspect it, it shows is the amount of biodiversity that can exist in, mm -hmm. say, volcanic summits. And so, yeah, the pictures I've seen of Cotopaxi are, are it's a wider sort of summit, not as point as that. Um, I hope to be there um, in Ecuador. It's not too far from Quito, actually. I hope to be there oh, in nice. this um, winter. The amount of sort of moving from sort of glacier, and there are still glaciers, I believe Cotopaxi has the last glaciers, the closest glaciers to the equator, because it's an equatorial uh, peak, and there are still glaciers there. But on the, uh, it would be the eastern slope then, heading down toward the Amazon, um, you can get into sort of lush uh, jungle terrain too. I don't know how far, and again, I don't suggest, I've never been there, and I won't suggest the scale is accurate, but moving from sort of a glaciated peak of a volcano to a, a tropical uh, jungle, a mm -hmm. tropical rainforest in um, not that many kilometers uh, uh, sort of horizontally, if mm -hmm. you will, but uh, simply the amount of biodiversity that can be provided by elevation and lift is has always been fascinating to me. Yeah, and that's really I interesting. I think he captures that well here, even if it is an exaggerated image of, of some of those landscapes. Huh. That's really interesting. Well, and that's sort of the perfect setup for this last image. First time I went down to Las Vegas, I've got a group of people who I uh, collaborate with a lot down there related to architecture and land art. And the first time I went down there to give a talk, we had five hours to kill. And the, uh, the person who ends up becoming a good friend of mine says, have you ever been to Red Rocks? And I'm like, I, you know, I've been to Las Vegas on the Strip. This is what, 40 minutes west of Las Vegas, if, if even that get on a couple of highways, and there you are in this astounding landscape. So I try to go there every time I'm in Las Vegas. I was just down there a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine who she had been there also. We go together and I took this photograph. Actually, I took like a hundred photographs because that's kind of one of the things that I do. Um, I, I love this landscape. I love that there's this depth to it. I love these rocky, shardy rocks. I'm so attracted to this sort of landscape. And I don't know how to literally describe it except to say, I just want to be inside of it. Not, I want to be standing there. I want to literally somehow be inside of it. I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but I feel, I feel something like really akin to these sorts of landscapes. So I wanted to just throw that out there and talk about that because it's both, there's a vertical, there's a horizontal. Um, it's not like I'm getting off the path and I'm going there. I can literally in my mind's eye feel what it's like to be in it. And that's a weird thing. I think. And it's actually amazing that, you know, for, because and you can do that through an image, because one of the things I've 
thought about a lot is, is I have that same response to a lot. For example, the first photo we looked at, the Ansel Adams photo, of I want to be there, but mm -hmm. I didn't want that connection to be mediated through a photograph uh, in a gallery, through a painting in a gallery. I wanted to actually be there physically and have that direct experience with it um, because it's different. And I think that's something I, I think about a lot these days as I, as I recreate. We're gonna, we made it a, an hour and 15, 12 minutes without bringing up Instagram, but uh, as I you recreate- You go for it a lot these days and in a lot of ways uh, social media has sort of uh, infiltrated the outdoor industry in a lot of oh, sure. uh, for good sure. and bad um, and but I, I fear the fact that for so many people, their connection with landscape, their connection with media is sort of doubly mediated through a photograph, through a device. That's this big. As of, as opposed to sort of uh, direct experience. And yeah. um, again, one of the opportunities I, I really cherish and, and try to take advantage of living here um, is sort of spending as much time sort of experiencing things directly and not needing a photograph uh, necessarily or a painting or representation mm -hmm. to sort of bring me there and especially not needing a photograph or painting on a social media platform uh, to bring me there and, and sort of create that direct experience with, with nature. And I find that a rewarding, soothing, relaxing, uh, mm -hmm. experience, particularly when I want to get off this campus and get out of my office and, yeah. and get away from uh, the work and meetings I have here, uh, that sort of ability to use nature for that sort of direct connection mm -hmm. yeah. and see some of the beautiful stuff we've shown has been really powerful in my own life and career and arguably kept me going through grad school, which is always a stressful experience out here, as well as the early days of my Westminster career, um, which came with a fair amount of stress as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I look at the photographs that I took there end of January. I look at them every day. And there are varying, you know, there's this section. That I've got three sections of photographs that I took. And I scroll through them every day. I really do appreciate that I'm scrolling through them on this. But there's something about being in a landscape and feeling that it's part of my interior landscape where even just having the image calls back from me that same feeling. And there's nothing that does that for me like landscapes. That Nothing. Was, that was my experience when you showed with, with the moon image, image number two, I believe it was. Uh, with the moon image there, um, I actually spent fall break, part of fall break, riding uh, bicycles with Brent down in the desert uh, in southern Utah down Canyonlands National Park. And that idea, although that image is great and very powerful, um, sort of having that 360 panorama, which right. you can't capture there. on a flat surface, right. um, and having that that sky, as many talked about, sort of that escape and that wonder, uh, sort of sprawl out um, yeah. above you in, in all directions in the kind of dome way. And it, there's something special about sort of a, a night in the desert, particularly if you have the, uh, uh, the, the um, pleasure of having a cloudless sky where you mm -hmm. get stars and a moon. And it's, it's so much larger and, and so big and, and so powerful um, that uh, you can't do justice to that through that mediate image. And I, I think that always has had a relaxing effect mm -hmm. and inspirational sometimes effect yeah. on my on my sort of soul, if you will. Sure. Well, and, and back to this idea of thinking about the skyscape and our place in all of this. I, I kind of think that opposite, like, wow, we're, we're here. Think about how we 
think about the way, the different ways that culturally we have crafted what's above us, right? We think about all of the different ways and the different names that we have given the moon and different attributes. And there's something just so lovely about that that really transcends time and people and culture and religion and everything. And that's pretty cool. I think that's the best way to conclude our little segment here because we have about uh, 15 minutes left. And I want to kind of turn it back to students and sort of have them bring in their own sort of experience with landscape, with nature, perhaps with art, um, and, and your own experiences here or elsewhere. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to wash your hands, practice good social distancing practices, and if you are recreating in the mountains, please remember that we need to make sure we save hospital beds for those that need them most. This isn't the time to be taking big risks. A big thank you also goes out to the Honors College at Westminster, to Kate Blair, and to Asma Dahir for organizing the spring series, and to Hikmet and Russ for sharing their experiences. And of course, thanks to Pixie and the Party Grass Boys for bringing our theme music. I'm not sure when we'll get the next podcast episode out, but we do have some big things in the works. Thanks again, and stay safe and healthy. Bye.